Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, good morning. This morning I'm going to start a, a short series preparing us for Christmas. Uh, we call that Advent, this build-up to the observation celebration of Christ's arrival at Christmas. And these next couple messages are meant to help us understand why Christians make such a big deal out of Christmas, why we hang up lights and give gifts and celebrate, why we pause from work. Why is this such a big deal? And why do Christians call their central message good news? Good news. I've been really encouraged lately by reading a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It has its strengths and weaknesses like every book, but one of the things I love about this book is, you know, there are a lot of books written about what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. And that's the way most of us like to deal with people. What did you do? What do you stand for? But this book is 23 chapters that talk only about the heart of Jesus. What is his heart like? It's like the difference between reading a biography and reading a series of journal entries by that same person. What is the heart of Jesus, and why should that make a difference to us? Dane Ortland is the pastor of Naperville Presbyterian Church, so it's kind of cool to read a book by a pastor who I could drive down the road and actually meet, and I'd like to do that sometime, because I, I, his perspective on Jesus has really touched my heart. At a time when I'm so wrapped up in what Jesus wants us to do, what I'm supposed to believe, and that all matters, I've been really going through some theological stuff, but it's so refreshing to just remember what his heart is like. That I'm not just supposed to be a human doing, but I'm supposed to feel something because of the way he feels about us and about the world. And Orland points out something that his dad taught him. And by the way, his dad is Raymond C. Ortland. You might recognize that name if you're a little order, older. He had a radio show for years called The Haven of Rest. You don't have to raise your hand. That'll totally out how old you are. But I remember that radio show. I remember Ray Ortland. And, uh, and that was his father. And so it's kind of cool. And he said his dad taught him this. And his dad learned it from Charles Spurgeon. It is that... In all of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is only one place where Jesus explicitly describes what his heart is like. Now, you can see his heart on display. You can make inferences about his heart. But there's only one place in all of the Gospels where Jesus explicitly says, My heart is like this. And that appears, uh, there's a picture of the book, that appears in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Get this. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the one place in the Gospels where Jesus talks about his own heart and says, This is what my heart 
is all about. And he's careful to define heart not as just a set of emotions, but as that animating center, that core of a person that makes them tick. What drives them out of bed in the morning? What defines every core motive they have in the way they interact with the world around them? What is your heart like? If you had to make a short statement using maybe two words, two adjectives to describe your heart, how would you describe yourself? How would you describe those closest to you? I actually thought about that this week. What would I say about my own heart if I were to make one statement? My heart is like this. It's surprising to me that the two words Jesus uses are gentle and lowly. Both words, both Greek words are very often translated into English as humble, both in other places in the New Testament as well as in regular Greek usage, just in secular Greek usage at the time, these two words most often meant humble, which is not the word you'd expect from the most powerful being in the universe. This word gentle can also be translated meek, humble. It describes someone who is not easily triggered who is not reactionary. Do you know any people who, like, it's really dangerous to talk to them because you're never sure if you're going to just get a normal tone or if you're going to get a, like a savage rage attack. You just don't know because they're so easy to trigger. Do you know anyone like that? And I often say, if you don't know anyone like that, you're probably that person and just have no clue that that's how you are. You think all of your rage outbursts are justified, but the truth is there are people you're just not safe to talk to because you're like poking a bear, you know? What Jesus describes himself is gentle, and part of that is I'm not looking for a fight all the time. That doesn't mean he's a coward. It doesn't mean he's a softy. It means that he's not looking to be righteously angry about everything. That's the way we experience a lot of people in our lives, especially people in authority over us. But the truth is, Jesus, when he describes himself, even when confronted with a person or a situation that everyone would accept, yeah, you should be really angry and triggered about that. Who wouldn't be? Even then, maybe especially then, Jesus shows a kind of grace and and calm and understanding that would surprise us. Even when judgment or anger would be the most normal reaction to this person or this situation, Jesus would surprise us with the way that he responds. And he's like this to everyone. You know, some of us are very selective in who we're gracious to. Oh, this kind of person, I've got all the patience in the world, but those kind of people, I will destroy you if you give me a chance. Jesus was an equal opportunity, gentle person. Whether it's someone who's a total mess or someone who should know better, he was gentle so much of the time. Gentle not in that he wouldn't say hard things, but gentle in that he would not confront you with rebuke and rejection only. There was always grace and understanding. In fact, in the book, Ortland says Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. And can I tell you that the people in my life who have most shaped me and have touched me and continue to influence me are people who, though they know the difference between right and wrong, confront my wrongness with understanding and grace again and again. 
I'm thinking about whether I'm that kind of person. And I want you to think before you just jump to, oh man, I wish blank was more like this in my life. Or, or, or before you jump to, oh, I should be more like this in my life. Before you go to projection or to application, just rest for a moment in the good news that the God who stands in judgment over you and me describes himself as gentle. He's not triggered by everything you do. He's not constantly angry at you. He's not waiting for you to screw up so he can point his finger and say, I knew you were going to show your true colors eventually. This word lowly is usually also translated humble. But often when we talk about humble, we're referring to a character trait. This person's not full of themselves. They're sort of like, uh, you know, they're, they're willing to say, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, you go first. Oh, no, please, after you. And that's partly the way that the New Testament uses this particular word. But most often, it's used to describe someone who is cast down because of life circumstances. It's not that they choose to be humble as a matter of character, but that they have been humbled by life. So you might say, oh, I, I went to their house. It's kind of a humble dwelling. That doesn't mean it's a giant, amazing house that they on purpose made it look low. It means it's not a great house. It's a place where people live, but you're not, it's not something you're going to see in architectural digest. It's a humble dwelling. That's the way Jesus describes himself. That's even more surprising to me, is that Jesus chooses to identify with people whose life has cast to a lowly place. This is the person that when you walk into the cafeteria in high school, it's the last table you'd choose to sit at, but maybe the only one where there's an empty seat. You know what I'm talking about? There's a table you wish you could work your way up to, and then there's a table you're like, fine, I'll just sit here. And Jesus says, I sit at that table. I'm the person of the party not everyone wants to schmooze up to because I can't advance your career or your reputation. I'm that person that you don't necessarily think you're going to benefit from being around, but you will. Really all told, what he's trying to say there is, I'm approachable and I'm accessible. When you see me and you're not at your best, I'm the person who you're going to instinctively think, but I could still go to that person. I could still sit there and find welcome at that table. Now I want you to think about the fact that of the, of the ways, all the ways that Jesus could describe himself, these are two words which Jesus uses to say, this is what my heart is like. Aren't you glad that the God who we are accountable to describes himself this way? Because I can tell you right now that most Maybe that's ungenerous. Many of the people who say they are God's people don't strike us this way, do they? The fact that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart is really good news for people who labor and are heavy laden. This is not welcome news to everybody. If you're agitated, you're frustrated, you're mad at the world, you're tired of all garbage, then this is not really great news for you. This is kind of irritating. You're like, I wish he would, he would have said, I am a warrior. I am on fire. I come, you know, that's what we want to hear sometimes. But here's the truth. This is great news for people who labor and are heavy laden. Th- that, those words 
they depict someone who has been working really hard to be good or to make their life good, but they're just worn out. They're trying so hard to do what is right or to try to be a good person, or if not those things, at least to make their life something worthwhile, something enjoyable. And though they try and they try and they try, the things that once were our pleasure just don't as much anymore. They're frustrated at every turn. It seems like no one is helping them out. And they are just at the end of themselves. They are groaning under the heavy weight of all of this, and they don't know what to do. It's not just the heaviness of life in other people, but in the midst of that, they see the heaviness of their own failures and shortcomings, and they're worn out. It doesn't mean they don't want to work hard, but the, the working hard is what has got them so defeated. Why does life have to be so hard and so futile so much of the time? And so they've come to the end of themselves, and they just want some rest for their souls. And it's not just everybody else's fault. They know in their hearts it's also theirs. If you're in that state, then it's particularly good news that Jesus, our Savior, chooses to describe himself this way. Writing about Jesus some 700 years before Jesus would be born, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. He's saying that the arrival of Jesus would be like a very bright light dawning in the morning on people who have dwelt in the deepest, deepest darkness. Now, the sun sets these days at 4.30, so this is especially uh, pulling at my heart how many of you are pretty upset that the sun goes down at 4.30? Anybody annoyed by that? It's just like you look outside and you're like, I'm not even going home from work yet, and it's already dark. That's messed up. And so I long for spring when the light stays out in the sky much longer. And, and what Isaiah is saying is Jesus will feel like that for people who've only known darkness for so long. In John 8, 12, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In the Bible, darkness is often used as a metaphor for sin and for suffering. A person who is steeped in sin is said to be living in darkness. And when a person is going through terrible suffering, it's, they're, they're described as a person going through a darkness of their life. Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world. So the principle is this, the further you get away from Jesus, the darker your life becomes. And the darker your life becomes, the greater darkness you cast onto other people. You are filled with either darkness or light, and you can't hold that inside. You will cast that darkness or that light over other people around you. So darkness is actually a very good metaphor to describe spiritual realities, whether it's the darkness of sin or it's the darkness of suffering. And often both of them are very closely related, aren't they? One word that the Bible uses, and by the way, you should think about this a little bit. We're far from God because we sin, but we also sin because we're far from God. Both of those statements are true. Both 
produce darkness in our lives. One word we use as Christians to describe people who are far from God is lost. Now, some people get uh, annoyed, offended at the word lost. Who's to say you're, maybe you're lost. I wasn't looking for where you're trying to go, and I get that. So we're not saying they're lost like they're stupid and they don't know where they're going. Lost in biblical terms means a person who has walked in the opposite direction away from the God who created them with a purpose. You're free to walk in any direction you want, but you're lost to God when you choose to walk in the opposite direction away from Him. That's what we mean as Christians when we refer to lost people. It's not a derogatory statement. It's not meant to be an affront to their intelligence or their ability to navigate life. It just means that they've chosen or fallen into a life that leads them away from or in the opposite direction of God. Sometimes suffering does that. Sometimes success does that. But there's a lot of ways for people to become lost to God, to live their lives apart from the God who created them lovingly with a purpose. I found that people who are lost in this way usually don't need reminding and don't appreciate reminding about lostness. They know somewhere deep down that that's their state, that they're far away from this God. I think part of the reason that's hard to be honest about that, especially with other people, is because when you share that with other people, what you often get is judgment and rejection. And in truth, many people who are in this state have also come to recognize that many moments of their own lives, they hate themselves. You know, when we live a life walking in the opposite direction away from God, there's this kind of exhilaration at first, isn't there? This sort of titillating sense of freedom, just like when I used to blow off class in college. You may be shocked to discover that your pastor blew off class. I did it kind of a lot, especially the 8 a.m. classes. And there would be this feeling of like, sometimes I'd be walking in the quad and it'd be such a nice day and I'm supposed to be in that class noise lab at 1 p.m. And I'm like, I'm not going. I'm going to just sit out on this grass and look at the sky. And at at that first moment, there's a sense of freedom. Like, I just declared independence. I don't have to, you're not the boss of me. I don't have to be anywhere. And my parents aren't around to make me go to class. So there's this freedom, this excitement. But then it's immediately followed by the regret. Oh, crud. I missed a lot of stuff. I got to make all that up anyway. It's like that feeling of immediate freedom followed by this bill you have to pay. So credit cards are meant to teach us. How much more fun is it to use a credit card than to pay the statement at the end of the month? So much more fun to go shopping than to do the bills. And that's just the way it works. When we walk away from God, there is this feeling of freedom like no one can tell me how to live. And yes, that's true. But then you can't dictate to the universe how your life is supposed to go either. This world is a broken, messed up place. We have broken, messed up hearts. When we live a certain way, a certain kind of life follows, and we don't really have control over both of those things. And so often people who are lost and far from God also fall into moments where they know their life is a mess and they hate it. But it's hard to get honest about that because they have a suspicion, and I think it's understandable, that if I turn to God, he's probably going to be just like all the people who represent God. 
And if I go to God, I'll probably find anger and judgment and rejection, just like I do with other people. That's why it was important that when the angels on that first Christmas gathered around with some, some shepherds and they announced the birth of Jesus, look at the terms in which they describe the arrival of Jesus. The angels said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. What strange words to describe the birth of a baby. But they, he, The angel says, this is good news, and it will produce great joy for everyone who finds their way to this Savior. Here's what the angels are saying. That when you're far from God, the last thing you want to do is to come back to God because you're expecting that what you're going to get at the, in the presence of God is rejection and anger and condemnation. But instead, Jesus says in his testimony about himself, come to me. That's the real invitation. Come to me. And why can you come to me? Because I'm like this. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus says he will not meet our sin with condemnation and rejection if we will come to him. That phrase, come to him, that's what the Bible defines as repentance. Repentance isn't just regret and remorse and groveling and self-hatred. That's not what repentance biblically is. It's just soaking in terrible feelings about how bad you are. That, that may be involved emotionally, but the heart of biblical repentance is simply those words, come to me. Stop walking in the direction you're walking. Turn away from it. Change your mind and come back to God, your maker, and live in his kingdom. That's the invitation. That's what repentance biblically is. It's not just regret and remorse and self-loathing. It is a turning of the direction of your life. A decision to rouse yourself from where you are and come to him. And if you will do that, this, this is not a blanket promise. He's not gentle and lowly to everybody. There really is the wrath, the righteousness of God. That is real. But the way he will be to those who repent and turn to him. He will meet your sin with patient mercy and understanding. To those who have wandered away in the darkness of sin, if you will turn around and come to him, what you will find is open arms and a welcome. He also says, I'm lowly, meaning I will be approachable and accessible. When the last thing you want to do is come before a holy God with your unholy life, when you're sick of yourself and everyone around you has reminded you that you smell bad, you look terrible, he would not meet that kind of returning by loading upon us a greater burden of labor and guilt. Instead, look at what he promises. If you will repent and come to me, I won't add more burden to your heavy laden backs, but I will finally give you rest for your tired souls. There's only one condition that we have to meet to take advantage of this great invitation. And that's that we have to turn away from darkness and come to Jesus. He is the light of the world. The world is full of darkness. And this is what the Bible calls repentance. We like to talk a lot 
about what God is like, but this is a trustworthy saying. For any who will turn away from darkness and turn toward the light of Jesus Christ, what you will find in him is never rejection and condemnation, anger, and short-temperedness. You'll always find an approachable, accessible, gentle, and understanding God. Instead of heaping on your back a greater burden than the one you're already carrying, he will give you rest for your soul. And from that place, you will be free to spend the rest of your life delighting in living for him and for his righteousness and his kingdom. I'm going to turn a corner and finish off this sermon with what amounts to a long biblical illustration. In Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, Jesus encounters some Pharisees, and they're really grumbling and ticked off about him because he loves associating with people that religious people shouldn't associate with. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. That's just weird. People who never want to come to church want to come hear, hear from Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They can't stand to see this. They're offended by it, and they mutter, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They say it like an accusation, like an insult, but it's actually a great compliment. Because those people were not going to come to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They had no interest in going to people who would further condemn them and let them know just how bad they were. That's not that it's not needed, but that's God's role to do. That's the Holy Spirit's role to convict. Isn't it interesting that the people who were so uncomfortable around the religious leaders of the day were so attracted to Jesus? I think about what kind of people are attracted to me as a religious leader. And that's been a convicting journey that I've been on all week. What kind of people are attracted to me? And then I started to think, maybe it's the most reliable measure of the healthiness of a church is not how many well-put-together religious zealots gather there, but how many really messed up people are instinctively attracted to that fellowship? How many people who don't have anything put together right still find themselves drawn to that place like a moth to a flame? Because that's the way it was for Jesus. They couldn't explain why this rabbi, out of all the rabbis, kept pulling at their hearts, but they were drawn to him. They couldn't help themselves. I don't want to go to church, but this dude, I can't stop listening. Something about him makes me want to be around him. Do people who are far away from God, whose lives are a total mess, do they find in us something attractive, the same thing that attracts people like that to the person of Jesus? In response to their grumbling, Jesus tells them three stories, and the point of these three stories is twofold. One is to rebuke them and say, you've got it totally backwards. You're supposed to be more like me, not the other way around. And it's also to show them an illustration of the great joy that God feels when something lost to him is found. I'm not going to go into an exhaustive treatment of all these three stories. We could turn this into a whole series. I'm going to just use it like an illustration. In the first story, he tells the story of a man who's got a hundred sheep, and one of them is lost. 
Now, anyone in those days with a hundred sheep, they're well off. You would consider that person a wealthy person. So that person could stand, they could afford to absorb the loss of one sheep. You would say to yourself, oh man, that's still one sheep, but I got 99 others, I'm not going to waste my time. That's what the audience would have expected, is dude, you've got 99, just move on with your life and let some poor dude find that last one. But he goes, he leaves the 99 in the open field and he makes it his mission to find the one that was lost. That's unexpected coming from a wealthy man. And we have to be careful not to over-allegorize these stories. They're meant to tell us something important about the heart of God. We don't have to turn every element of these stories into some spiritual reality. And here's the main point of that story. That no matter how many people God's got, every single one matters to Him. There are no disposable, invisible, unimportant human beings to the heart of the Father God. Every single person, even the ones we don't value at all, matter to God, and he will drop everything to pursue even that one. That's the heart of our God. I'm so glad he's like that because we're not like that really at all. I'm drawn to who I'm drawn to. I like certain kinds of people, don't you? But this God of ours will drop everything because each, every single person matters to him. He values them. And at the end of each story is this sort of climactic moment where he's he's illustrating, look at the great joy of the character in the story. When they found that thing, which they prized and valued, it was lost and they found it. It says, when he finds that missing sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my last sheep. I'm sorry, my lost sheep. I love that he carries the sheep on his shoulders. He doesn't say, you idiot, where were you? You know how long I've been looking for you? That's what we do, right? (laughs) Even when you lose your kid in the mall, like that first moment, you're like, Oh, thank God you're okay. Don't you ever walk away from daddy again. There's none of that. He just picks this thing up. Says, oh man, you had me worried. I'm so glad I found you. And look at the joy that overflows from the shepherd over the lost sheep that's found. In the second story, a woman has only 10 silver coins and she loses one of them. So now we go from a wealthy man to a poor woman. If you have 10 coins and you lost one and you stop everything to look for it, you're not doing that well financially. And so this woman is desperate to find this coin. Raise your hand if you've ever lost your wallet or your purse somewhere. My Lord, almost every... Let's try this. Raise your hand if you've never lost your wallet or your purse. These are our life coaches, people. These are our life... Don't don't be ashamed. He's like, just me. I'm the only one. Do you know what it feels like when you lose a wallet? Isn't that the worst feeling when you're like... Oh, shoot. And then you're, you're tracing all of your steps. You're trying to figure out where you last were. When did you last use it? It's the worst kind of panic. And from that moment until you find it, there's no going to work. There's no talking to your, your family. Nothing else matters. This is priority one. Right? I can't even go to work. I'm like, hey, hey, team, I'm not coming in today because I lost my wallet. And they're like, oh, yeah, you better find your wallet. Because they all empathize. They've all been there. 
When something is valuable, it's important to you and you lose it, it's one of the worst feelings and you don't stop till you find it. The point of this story is to illustrate the desperation, the focus with which the Father heart of God pursues people who have gotten themselves lost to Him, who are far from Him, who have chosen or been been pushed away in such a way that they are living their lives far from Him. And He seeks after them with the same kind of desperation that you and I feel when we're looking for a lost wallet. Remember I told you that story years ago? When Jeannie lost her keys and the ministry center keys were on that key ring. Now we have an extra key fob for the car, so that's not a big deal. But that ministry center key in the old ministry center, if you lost the one key, we'd have to re-key all the locks and it was a $1,200 penalty. So her losing her keys was not, oh, it's $1,200, honey. You can't be casual about that. But she thinks she lost it at a gathering in Andy and Mary Toy's backyard, but it was wintertime. So I borrowed someone's metal detector, and every couple days, I swept their yard with a metal detector, trying to detect the keys, but there, were about, there was about a foot of snow at the time. And so I went throughout the winter, literally for months. They were, their neighbors like, uh, Andy, do you know there's a strange Asian dude like sweeping your lawn with a metal detector? I cannot tell you the joy when the, the snow melted down to about two inches, and that metal detector blared. That's commitment. That's, that's, you know, and I found the keys and saved us $1,200. And Jeannie's reaction was, oh, thanks. Like, it's gotta, you gotta have a little more than that. That's, that's like serious key evangelism like that I just did. But that story should remind you of the emotional profile of a person who's desperate to find something that was lost. Aren't you glad that that's the way your heavenly father looks for lost people. And look at this great effusive joy. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. You know, there are certain kinds of joys that it's enough to just sit in your car and go, Yes! And it's all by yourself. You're just so happy. And it's enough and then you move on. But there's a kind of joy that's so great, you can't just celebrate by yourself. you got to call somebody we got to go out and celebrate. I can't just be happy about this by myself. I want to share my joy with you. Let's have a party. Let's go out to dinner. It's that kind of joy. It's not that, that momentary, yes, it's a joy that cannot be suppressed. That's the way God feels about every single lost person who finds their way home to him. And the last story tells about a son who leaves his father's house. And he leaves his father's house in the most offensive way. This last story is not about something that just got lost. It's about someone who got himself lost by his own terrible choices. This is the hardest story of the three. Because so far, everyone listening is like, oh yeah, yeah, if I lost a sheep, I'd probably go look for it too. If I lost a coin, I'd probably search. So, so far, so good. Then they get to this last story, like, this guy's crazy. Because here's this kid who everyone here would be like, so let him eat, let him eat with the pigs. That's what he deserves. He made his bed, let him lie in it. Isn't that what every one of us is feeling reading that story? What a little punk. If one of my four kids came up to me and said, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. Give me my share of the money and stop calling me. I'd be like, oh. 
I wouldn't be like, oh, my, my child, sweetie, here, here's your fourth of the inheritance. <laughs> That's not what I would emotionally be feeling at all. Neither would you. And if I gave him that money, you might be like, oh, you're such a gracious father, but you turn around and tell your husband or wife, they're not raising their kids right. <laughs> what a mess. That's not how we, right, honey? That's not what we would do with our kids, right? This is a messed up way to parent. And he gives this kid what he asked for, and the kid goes off. And the long and short of the story is this. For a Jew, this kid sinks as low as a Jew can sink. He's now living among foreigners taking care of their pigs. Pigs are unclean, ceremonially unclean animals. Just to touch a pig was to be defiled. This kid's down in the dirt taking care of the pigs and is so hungry he's jealous of the slop that the pigs are eating. You can't get lower than this. And the moral of the story to most Jews in that original audience would have been, see, when you walk away from God, your life sucks and you deserve it. It's how it should be. Good for you. Why don't you eat with the pigs for a while? Do you know, I've actually used that phrase before in my less glorious moments. They need to eat with the pigs for a while. Let them. Let them eat with the pigs. They, this kid made his choice. And everything that everyone would have predicted was going to happen, happened. And shouldn't we say, well, that's just the way the world is. Tough luck. Sucks to be you. When he couldn't take it anymore, he rouses himself. The story says, look what it says. This is repentance. So he got up and went to his father. Maybe he did it because he was desperate. But regardless, this is, in the end, at the heart of it, what the Bible calls repentance. He goes back to the Father. He doesn't go back to manipulate the terms. He thinks he's going to have to argue his case. But while he was still a long way off, look at how surprising the turn in the story is. His father saw him and was filled with compassion. For him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The whole way back in the story, it says this guy is rehearsing all the arguments he's going to make. Dad, listen, I screwed up. I'm not even asking to be your son. Just let me live like a servant in your house. I'll work for minimum wage. Don't even treat me like family. He's got all these arguments stored up in his head, but he gets to see his dad, and he sees his dad kicking up dust, running across the horizon towards him, and instead of a punch to the face or a pointing finger, he gets an embrace and kisses on his cheek, tears of joy. At this point, Jesus has lost his audience. They cannot understand someone like this. Why would you ever reward such poor behavior with grace and mercy? The moral of the story is he would do it because he is not like us. We create God in our own image. We try to make God pretty much like us. And again and again, the God of Scripture reveals to us, He's not like us that much. He is transcendent. 
He is foreign. He is alien to us. He's different than us in some of the most profound ways. That's why we can never grow bored or jaded about him. He will surprise you every single time you really look at him and pay attention. He will surprise you. And mostly he'll surprise you by realizing he's not like you. He's like him. And we have to be more like him, not the other way around. Angry people want an angry God. Self-righteous people want a self-righteous God. But this God of ours is gentle and lowly in heart. That's not the only thing that can be said about him. Don't get me wrong. But when he identifies his own heart, those are the two words he chooses to put right in front of us. The father says to the servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Why? For this son of mine, he doesn't disown him. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The moral of this story is that lost people to God are not just wayward citizens, foolish violators of His rules. They're His children, lost to Him. And if your child ran away from home, you'd be angry, disappointed, but more than any other emotion, you'd feel grief, sadness, yearning. You would long for the day when that kid came back home. The last story is meant to tell us that we're not just a sheep or a coin to God. We are His children. And when we get lost to Him, He waits for us to come home. Let me end this way. Interestingly, the third story doesn't end there. It gets worse. (laughs) Because there's another brother who didn't leave the house. This older brother stayed faithfully by his dad's side, did all the right things, followed all the right rules. And when this older brother hears the sounds of a party after coming in from the fields, he's deeply offended. He's like, what's this party for? He asked one of the the staff, why is my dad throwing a party? What happened? Oh, you didn't hear? Your stupid brother came home and we're throwing him a party. Right there at the moment, where do you find yourself in this story? Because I think most of us would identify right away with that brother and say, what the heck is that? Not a moment in the doghouse, but a party. And so he refuses to come in. And the father leaves the party to go out to that son and begs him. He actually begs him in the story, please come in and celebrate. And look at what this bitter brother says. I'm out slaving for you all these years. Ouch, man. What a way to frame your life with the Father. I was slaving for you. It wasn't that I lived at home because I love you. I was slaving for you. And yet, and he, he refuses even to acknowledge his relationship to this kid. When this son of yours, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. 
I don't think there's a person in this room who couldn't have written those words in our own journal. It's not the right way to do things. How do you throw a party for a kid like this? And yet even to this son, the father patiently, graciously, this is the kid in church who should know better. The Christian who should have a better attitude. And yet even to this wayward son, the father patiently says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because catch this, it's not this son of mine, but this brother of yours. You want to disown him, you want to distance yourself. I remind you as your father, that's your brother. It's not some stupid kid. It's not just my son, he is your brother. She is your sister, this person who was lost to me. And this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In some surprising way, I think the son who stayed hurt the father more than the son who left. And even then, the father is gracious, understanding, patient, merciful. He even reminds this brother that he's not just my son, but he's your kin. This last brother reminds us that there's more than one way to get lost with God. Sometimes the people who think they're closest to God are the furthest away from him in their hearts. Very often, these parables are preached entirely about unbelievers who need to be saved. But I believe Jesus first told these stories to change the hearts of people who thought they belonged to God, but whose hearts were far away from Him. The first people that have to come home to God are the people who think they're already home and don't realize how lost they are. Here's the good news, because He is gentle and lowly in heart. If you want to come home, you don't have to work up a good story. You don't have to find a good argument. All you got to do is get up, turn around, come home. That's it. It's what I'd tell my kid if they ran away. You don't have to get your act together. You don't have to clean up. Just come home. We'll fix it all together. Just come home. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we call the gospel good news, because we're shocked to discover just how outrageously different God is than we expect Him to be. And the good news is He's better than we could ever have imagined. He's everything a lost person could hope for. Let's take a moment and let's just bow in prayer. I have no idea where this message strikes you, what you needed to hear from it today, but I trust that God said something to you. Maybe it's about your own heart. Maybe you find yourself that older brother, impatient, 
frustrated, bitter, cold-hearted. Maybe it's you. You realize that you thought you were home, but you need to come home. You've been further away than you thought. I'm going to ask you to open your heart, open your ears, and let God speak to you right now what you need to hear, just you. And if he stirs something up in your heart, a conviction, would you sit in that for a moment and respond to God in your own words? And I'll close us in a quick word of prayer and we'll finish with a song or two. Let's pray together. God, you are so gentle and lowly. You are also righteous, all-powerful. You do have wrath in your heart about sin. There is a holy fury in your spirit against Satan and his scheming, against all the darkness in the world. And yet, these two features stand out to us today. And it's such good news for people who have come to the end of themselves. are just worn out. They don't want to labor anymore. They want to stop fighting. For those who are willing to turn around and come home, may each find in you a welcome and a celebration. May they feel your joy wash over them because this son, this daughter of yours who was lost has come home, who was once dead is now alive again. It is this good news that we celebrate at Christmas. Thank you, Jesus, for being this way, for being so different than we are when confronted with people who deserve judgment and rejection. Make us more like you and thank you for being who you are. We love you. We celebrate you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.